0: The reading is taken from Acts 21 verses 1 to 26. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Coz. But the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nassan, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, And one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went on to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God, and then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat strangled of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jock. Um, If you've got a Bible with you, physically or on a phone, then do um, keep Acts 21 open in front of you for a few moments. If you're um, listening to this at home, hopefully it's easier for you to be able to reach for one and uh, keep that passage open. Um, Let's just pray for a moment. Uh, Father God, we want to thank you that you are not a God uh, who we cannot know because you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and through your word. And we pray that as we reflect on these verses, that you'd speak to our hearts and to our lives by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'd like to ask you just for a moment to picture your ideal holiday. Um, I wonder what comes to mind uh, when, you, when you think of that. Maybe you're thinking of a beach. Uh, maybe you're thinking of a you know, sort of city in Italy or somewhere where you'd like to be. Maybe it's a ski slope. I don't know what you think of. Um, how about this? Sailing around the Mediterranean, taking in Kos and Rhodes and um, Phoenicia... Cyprus, various other places. Doesn't sound too bad, does it, as a, as a way to spend, and um, it would be ideal in September, wouldn't it, As it's getting a bit cooler in England? Um, and that's pretty much the trip that Paul makes here in Acts chapter 21, as described in those first couple of verses that we just heard read. And uh, I would imagine the islands back then were at least as beautiful as they are today. Probably the sea was a little bit bluer and a little bit clearer um, before some of the, the pollution that, that I guess has happened in recent years. That said, of course, Paul's trip was no holiday, was it? Even if it was an idyllic setting. And we are very much in the final part of Paul's travels now. Um, that We've been following through the second half of the book of Acts. And after all his adventures, all the challenges that he's met as he's visited churches and planted churches in different places, uh, he's now heading back to Jerusalem. And then on one final trip with a one-way ticket to Rome. Um, Both of them would be amazing cities to visit on holiday, wouldn't they? I don't know if anyone here has been to Jerusalem or been to Rome. I imagine there might be some of us who have. Um, But both of them, for Paul, hold danger and trouble. And yet he's determined to go there, isn't he? Um, He's heading straight into the eye of the storm. Um, Very much following in the footsteps of Jesus, which is a thought we'll come back to as we just reflect on these verses for a few minutes now. Uh, And what we've just read here uh, is not just a description of some stuff which happened many years ago. Uh, These are things which I think can really help us as believers today, as as Christians, disciples, people who are wanting to follow Jesus because uh, this is a passage which helps us to wrestle with some quite big questions for us. And uh, there are two questions in particular that I want us to pick up on from these words today. Um, The first one is this, what if being a disciple is hard? What if it's tough? What do we do then? How do we respond when it turns out that following Jesus is no picnic, no holiday, it's not easy? And I think this is a really helpful question for us to ask, because you will know if you've been a Christian for a while, and I know that many of us have, that sometimes it will be hard. Um, it's not all bouncing up and down on your mum's knee and enjoying life, although it's really great when it is like that. Um, Following Jesus is not easy. It's um, it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's the best thing I've ever decided to do. Um, But uh, Jesus told his disciples in no uncertain terms things like the world will hate you. He warned us that sometimes it would be like that, and so we shouldn't be surprised. Often it is a surprise, I think. I wonder if that's because... As Christians, sometimes we tend not to want to talk about the the hard stuff, especially when we're talking to people who are not Christians, because we don't want to put them off, and so we want to focus on all the good stuff. Um, But that's actually underselling Jesus' value. Well, it wasn't easy in the first century either. And so as Paul heads for Jerusalem via all these beautiful places en route, uh, he meets many disciples, uh, some of them are old friends, and they warn him they warn him that he's going into danger, and they urge him, Paul, don't go. Do not go there. But Paul knows that's what he's got to do. And what is said here between him and his friends is quite revealing for us. So in the city of Tyre, verse 4, we read, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, which is quite an interesting phrase, isn't it? And It's not easy to understand, actually, if I'm honest. If the Holy Spirit is saying, don't go, then surely he shouldn't go. So I I take it that's probably not quite what Luke means here. Um, As a rule of thumb, you know, if if something the Bible says seems to contradict what it says elsewhere, then it probably means there's something we haven't quite understood. And sometimes we can't be 100% sure. Um, I want to suggest that maybe the most likely explanation here is that the Holy Spirit has revealed to them that Paul is heading for danger, And they've then made the leap to say to him, well, don't go, rather than that second part being what the Holy Spirit is saying. I don't know that for sure, but maybe that would make sense of this particular comment here. Either way, Paul is going. He travels on down the coast of um, of what is Lebanon, I guess, and into Israel at Caesarea. He goes to stay with Philip. You might remember him. Um, He met an Ethiopian in chapter 8. And the prophet called Agabus, turns up again. And again, if you've got good memories, he's cropped up before as well in Acts. And he comes and gives this prophecy over Paul. He takes Paul's belt and he ties his hands and he binds his feet. And he says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles been quite a disturbing image wasn't it you know being literally tied up like that and then had that said over you and so again the people with Paul plead with him not to go heed the warning change your plans and at the heart of this passage is Paul's response and then what his friends say back to him in the next couple of verses which we'll look at just now but essentially Paul says I know what's coming and I'm ready and his friends say okay then The Lord's will be done. But first of all, what is this saying to us all these years later? Very clearly, it's not saying, and I am not saying, that as Christians we should go looking for trouble. Um, Trouble in itself is definitely not a good thing. And we've seen Paul at various times in Acts, haven't we, going out of his way to avoid trouble. You might remember him being lowered in a basket through the city walls in Damascus. Um, or just laying low when there was a riot in Ephesus, or just being ready to follow the, the guiding of the Spirit when there seems to be a no to being in a certain area, but then an opportunity in another one. So there's no sense here that Paul looks for trouble, just that at this point he knows that his calling next is to go to Jerusalem, and if that means trouble and danger, then so be it. That's what he must do. And so he hears the prophecy, you know, the binding of his hands. He hears what his friends have got to say, And then verse 13, Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. There's two telling responses there, aren't there? From both Paul and his friends. Um, First of all, there's Paul. And his attitude is, look, I've been warned, I know that, but I'm ready for it. I'm ready to die if necessary for the sake of Jesus. And these are not just words, of course, for Paul. He's not going to die in Jerusalem. He probably will in Rome. So how can he say that? What is going on here? It's what one writer calls the collision between the, the values of the kingdom of this world and the values of the kingdom of Jesus. And it is absolutely true, isn't it? All of us are influenced every day by the values of the world around us in all kinds of different ways. The culture affects us by what we see on TV, by what we read on Facebook, by our friends, by our colleagues, our teachers, um, our neighbors, the people we know. The world is very good at training us, training people to live according to its priorities, discipling us, we might say. And according to the world in which we live, The one thing which is always bad, and to be avoided at all costs, is suffering and pain. Always wrong. And what is to be aimed for, and seen almost as the highest good over all other things, is comfort and pleasure. They are the ultimate. And most of the time, isn't that exactly how most of us live? That's what we go out of our way to both avoid and to seek. And I'm not pointing the finger at any of you as I say that. I'm pointing it at me. You know, I know my own heart. And where my priorities very often lie. And I'm not, by the way, either, saying that I think the world is terrible in 2021. I think it's been like this in many cultures at many times. These are common attitudes which are hardwired into our human instinct. But what we see going on here is that the gospel does actually take a different view. Different perspective on life and on comfort and on pain. We follow a saviour who willingly suffered, don't we? That's what Jesus did. That's who Paul follows. And Paul wrote about it in his letters. You might remember Paul's letter to the Philippians where he famously says, uh, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he kind of weighs up, I'm not sure which is better in these circumstances. And maybe you've read that before and you've thought, well, Paul, that's easy for you to say, easy to write. But actually what we see of Paul here is that he doesn't just say it, does he? This is how he lives. This is what he's doing as he heads for Jerusalem, he's ready to put into practice what he preaches. Um, he knows that the good news of Jesus means that we shouldn't worship what this world can offer us above everything else in life, which is pretty fleeting anyway. He knows that the eternal glory of knowing Christ Jesus is worth more. So let me say again, trouble and pain is bad. It's the result of the world being fallen and separated from God. Those are not things we should look for or seek. But neither should we be surprised if we come across them, especially if we're being faithful to Jesus. Paul says suffering here for the name of Jesus, doesn't he? And if that should happen, it does not mean Jesus has deserted us. Um, most of us will probably not need to be arrested for our faith. You know, that is a huge blessing, let alone killed for it. Good to remember, though, that there are Christians in various parts of the world today who may face those things. You know, We thought recently about Afghanistan, haven't we? But it's not the only place where it's still very tough to follow Jesus. And even if things may not be quite that extreme on the agenda for us, there are other ways in which standing up for Jesus can be costly, aren't there? Maybe in your family, you know, maybe at work, among your friends, whatever it might be. Maybe we should pray for the boldness of Paul. Um, that's what Paul says. And then what do his friends say in reply? Well, verse 14, they, they, I guess they realize his mind is set, don't they? That this uh, man is not for turning. And so they say, the Lord's will be done. And I don't think that's just being fatalist. I don't think that's just the Christian equivalent of, you know, que Sarah, Sarah. Whatever will be, will be. Fair enough, Paul. I think it's, it's a bit more than that. It's actually the most serious prayer we can pray, I reckon. The Lord's will be done. And one we should pray. It's a line from the Lord's prayer, isn't it? But of course, you may remember, it's also the prayer that Jesus prays in the garden the night before he dies as he was about to go and face the biggest trouble of his life. Uh, and again it's totally countercultural, isn't it? Everything inside of us and many of the voices around us are saying to us, not the Lord's will be done, my will be done, you know, our will be done. Be true to yourself. That's the message we're given, isn't it? Do what feels right to you, what is good for you, what you want. But the prayer of Luke and the others here with Paul is not that. It's the prayer of Jesus. It's the Lord's will be done. So that's question one. What happens when it's hard as a Christian? And there's a lot to learn from Paul here. Um, But just briefly, there's a second question, which this passage helps us think about as Paul does get to Jerusalem. And it's this one. Under what circumstances should we take a stand? When is it right to take a stand? And when is it better to just not to be quite so bothered. Paul gets there, gets to Jerusalem, and James, it seems, is worried. Who is James described in this passage? Well, this James was Jesus' brother, I guess his half-brother, um, who by this stage was pretty much the key leader of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, almost certainly the same James who wrote the book of James in our Bibles. And um, James and the others are delighted to hear how the good news of Jesus has spread like wildfire around all the places Paul has been, and they're able to report amazing growth in Jerusalem among the Jewish Christians as well. And uh, before in Acts, you know, we've been here, haven't we? They've had big discussions about how it's not necessary for believers from all the other nations to, to have to start following all the laws of Moses to be Christians. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. We, we, we read Galatians, didn't we, during the first lockdown? Um, all we need is faith in Jesus. But I guess this has been a big step, especially for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem to take on board. You know, they've had 1,500 years of following the laws of Moses. And verse 20 says, many of the people are still zealous for the law. And they've heard that Paul is teaching people that it's not necessary. So what's going to happen now he arrives in Jerusalem? Well, there's going to be trouble. We'll see that next time. But... In the midst of it, Paul will take a stand for this gospel, that it's only by faith in Jesus, and we'll see that in chapter 22. But here, he's also careful to be as flexible as he can be over things that are not vital. And so James says to Paul, from verse 23 onwards, look, why don't you go and join these men who are going to offer these purification rites, you know, to show the people that you're not just rejecting our ways, rejecting what the, the scriptures say, what should Paul do under those circumstances? Well, it seems that he's convinced that, well, that we've, we've agreed on the fundamentals of this, the principles, um, that new Gentile believers, people like you and me, I'm taking almost all of us here this morning, we're free, as Galatians says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're not bound by laws that we have to follow. But at the same time, Paul has no desire to, to cause trouble by kind of trumpeting his freedom in a way which will be hard for some of the people there still to understand. Uh, Make it harder for them to be believers, perhaps. And I wonder if there's also a lesson for us in there, as we live together as a church family and as part of a wider church. What are the things we don't need to insist on? So Paul can do this thing that James asks with a clear conscience. He's a Jew himself. He's not making demands of anyone else. It's a relatively small thing for him to do for the sake of unity and peace. Of course, that doesn't mean we can just compromise on anything and everything. Um, as, As I said, we'll see in the next chapter over the next couple of weeks that when Paul says that God sent him to preach about Jesus to people of other nations and they came to faith, there is practically a riot. And Paul's kind of like, well, there's nothing I can do about that. That's the gospel. I'm not changing the gospel. There's no room for maneuver there. But the question for us is then, so what are the things we need to insist on as believers? What are the things that don't matter so much. And for the sake of one another, we we don't make such a big deal of. And to be fair to James, it seems he gets this too. In verse 25, he says, we've written to the Gentile believers that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, um, which you can read about back in Acts chapter 15. But in other words, we've written to them, we've explained, you don't have to follow the whole law of Moses, you don't have to be circumcised. But here are some things that we should all do, we should avoid, uh, things around idol worship and and sexual practices which are not in line with God's will, um, because they're deep and significant, but also because we can't be united if if some of us are, are doing this and some of us are not. How could we eat at table together? So Paul goes off and he performs these rites of worship. And so I want to say, let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for one another that we would follow Paul's example as he follows Jesus here, both in how he responds to hard things with confidence in Jesus, but also as he works out uh, the wisdom about what to insist on and what to leave alone. So let's just be quiet for a moment and I will lead us in a prayer. Father God, as we reflect on the example of Paul, as he follows the example of Jesus, help us to be people who seek your kingdom before our own comfort. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us courage. Make us sensitive to the guiding of your Spirit. Make us ready to give ground to one another on things that don't matter much while standing firm for things which are essential and true. May the Lord's will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.